The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us today, and also new listeners on KMET in Riverside and San Bernardino County. Welcome. My guest today has been serving the citizens of our country for more than four decades. In just a moment, former representative and senator from North Dakota, Mr. Byron Dorgan, will be joining us. And one of the reasons I invited Mr. Dorgan to visit with us today is because summer is just around the corner, and it seems as if every summer, just about the time Americans pack up the car and hit the road with their families, gas prices jump. Mr. Dorgan has been a strong advocate for renewable energy and biofuels throughout his career, and his work on energy independence continues today through the Bipartisan Policy Center. So we're going to use this opportunity to check in with him to see how we're doing in terms of a cohesive energy policy. Before he joins us, let me mention that Mr. Dorgan was born in Dickinson and spent his childhood in Regent, North Dakota. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of North Dakota and his graduate degree from the University of Denver. At age 26, Mr. Dorgan had the distinction of being the youngest constitutional officer in North Dakota's history when he became the North Dakota State Tax Commissioner, a position he held for 11 years. Then in 1980, Dorgan was elected to the United States House of Representatives, where he served until 1992. And this was followed by a remarkable 18-year career in the United States Senate, where Dorgan became one of the most powerful Democrats in our government. He was the senior senator on the Appropriations, Energy, and Commerce Committees, and the chairman of the Committee on Indian Affairs, among many other responsibilities. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program one of our nation's tireless advocates for energy independence, Mr. Byron Dorgan. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Dorgan. Well, thank you, Rebecca. I'm pleased to do it. As I mentioned in my opening, it seems as if every summer, just about the time school lets out and Americans are getting ready to go on vacation, gas prices, they jump sky, they just skyrocket. Is that going to happen again this summer? Well, I don't know. Traditionally, that is the case. Uh, when demand goes up, uh, generally speaking, prices uh, increase. But it's also the case that we're producing more oil in this country now, more oil and natural gas, which is a very positive thing. But, uh, you know, oil is priced on the international market. It's not a U.S. price. It's an international price. So even though we're producing more oil, uh, the international price remains relatively high. And uh, people who drive to the gas pump and fuel their vehicle uh, see that the fact that we're producing more here at home doesn't have much to do with the price at the pump. Yeah, why is that? 
Well, uh, the you know the fact is in oil there is no free market. Everybody talks about the market. Well, there's no market that is free with respect to oil. You've got the Saudis. Uh, the Saudis earn about a trillion dollars a year selling oil. Well, they you know they're part of a cartel as well, and they want to keep earning about a trillion dollars a year. So they and the other countries in the cartel do what they can and what they must to try to keep prices high. And uh, that's why even though there is now more oil being produced, you don't see much reduction in the price of oil and therefore reduction in the price of gasoline. Well, according to a report by CNN just last month, since 2006, U.S. oil production has gone up 33 percent. And we're on track to pass the Saudis as the largest oil producer in the world by 2020. You know, but last year's election, we kind of got the impression that overall oil production was not increasing at the rate that we needed it to. So so where does America really stand in terms of our energy independence? Well, oil production is increasing pretty substantially. Uh, I know there was some of that discussion in the last presidential election campaign, mm-hmm. uh, but the fact is we're producing 25 to 30% more oil now than we were in the previous four-year campaigns, the presidential campaign. So uh, there's a lot of good things happening with respect to oil and natural gas. It's also the case that we are producing more renewable energy. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of doing it all. I mean, I, I'm one of those who says all of the above really ought to mean all of the above. And, and while I think the oil and gas story is a very strong and good story in this country right now, uh, it's also the case that we need more diversity in our fuel choices and fuel sources. And so I'm a big fan of uh, getting energy from the sun, you know, where the sun shines and the wind blows and collect energy from that and put it on a wire and move it to the load centers. We've also had great success in producing more wind, and we need to do even much more. We've had great success, but uh, not to the point where it's overtaken our continued dependence on oil. What what do you think the problem is there? Well, and I I think I said uh, produce more wind. We we don't produce the wind. The sun does that. But... uh, you know, produce more energy from uh, wind and Well, solar. I don't know. I, I live out here in Silicon Valley. I'm sure somebody's working on producing more wind. Well, Congress, <laughs> you know, I served there a long time. There's plenty of wind coming from the Congress. Uh, but um, what did you ask again? I, I, I was just asking, you know, what, what seems to be the problem with, with solar and wind technologies? Those have been around for several decades, and we just don't seem to produce any substantial amount of energy from, from those mechanisms. What, what, what's well, in because- our way? Why, why do we continue to be so dependent on oil? You know, I think there's kind of a culture uh, in this country, and has been for a long time, that uh, real men dig and drill. You know what I mean? <laughs> the so-called real men, quote-unquote, dig and drill. You drill drill holes for oil and dig for coal. And the rest of you, you know, you talk about uh, wind and solar and so on. You know, God bless you, but uh, go hang out at your university and uh, drink Chardonnay, drive your Volvo, smoke a pipe, and cogitate, but don't get in our way. <laughs> That's kind of been the way that... You know, it's always been uh, referred to, and and yet the opportunity to to get energy from wind and solar opportunities, especially, but others uh, geothermal, it's it's significant. By the way, there was a story uh, about Henry Ford, Harvey Firestone, and Thomas Edison uh, talking one day about energy sources early on in the last century, and they say Thomas Edison said, "In the long run, I'll put my money on the sun." 
You know, I will too, but uh, I, I just think that there's so much energy that's bathed on this planet every day from the sun that when we finally figure out a way to capture it in the quantity that we can, it will solve all of our energy needs. But then again, we have situations like the bad press that uh, startup Solyndra received in terms of government-insured loans. And, uh, and I think that has really hurt the solar industry. What do you think? It has, uh, no question about that. But, you know, that was a one-of-a-kind thing. And, and it, the Economic Recovery Act put 32 or $34 billion uh, in these areas where they were trying to incentivize new and clean and green technologies. And, you know, there were a couple of failures, but uh, there were also some very big successes. Now, the failures, like Solyndra, you know, politically, there were those who wanted to use that as a hood ornament to suggest that it was all a failure. It wasn't. You know, we early on when we started wanting oil and gas exploration in 1916, our country said, if you go look for oil and gas, if you're an explorer that goes to find oil and gas, God bless you, we love you, and we're going to give you a tax break. And we did that for 100 years and still do, and I'm fine with that. But, you know, with respect to those who are trying to get energy from the wind and the sun, we have a pathetic tax approach. We, in 1992, we said, we'll give you a production tax credit if you do this. We've let it expire several times. I mean, you know, it's pretty pathetic. I, I'd like to see us be robust in trying to find energy sources uh, from, the, from, from solar energy, wind energy, from all sources. I'm really a, a fan of all of the above. I agree with you. I think we've become so intolerant of failure, and it seems as though these days the media just jumps on whatever the failure du jour is and then uses that to lambast an entire program and defeat it. Um, And I point out to people all the time that in in the case of venture capitalists, they might invest in 100 companies, but they only expect 10 or 15 to do well. And as a venture capitalist, our government is outstanding. They beat every venture capital company in the world so but we tend to seize on that one that didn't work out and i you can't even imagine if a venture capitalist um, was defeated by one single failure you know they wouldn't be around for very long we we have to take a uh, short commercial break now and when we come back we're going to talk about why biofuels have have been a little slow to take off in this country you're listening to the costa report This Legal Minute is brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Experienced attorneys providing professional legal services to the Central Coast for 85 years. Hello, this is attorney Stephen Wagner with your Legal Minute. Have you ever said to yourself there ought to be a law for that? Well, often there is. In this segment, I will address the issue of social media and hiring practices, and specifically the potential employer's right to snoop around in social media networks to gather information about the potential employee. From the employer's perspective, social networking sites must seem like a treasure trove or petri dish, overflowing with valuable information. The hot-button legal issue that has arisen recently relates to the employer's request, or worse yet, demand for the candidate's password and or username. It is this conduct by the employer that has sparked outcry and controversy based on privacy rights, and this has led to legislation and the enactment of laws that now prohibit employers from making such demands or requests. Such is the case in California and several other states. It would now seem that the lid has been placed back on the Petri dish. 
However, it is important to note that employers still have a right to access all public information. That is, anything the potential or current employee chooses to share, publish, or make public. In other words, these laws do not protect job seekers from their own stupidity or indiscretions that they decide to gloat about by publishing their escapades on the World Wide Web. So it seems that discretion is still the better part of valor. This is Stephen Wagner, and that's your legal minute. Brought to you by Nolan Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Selected in 2013 as one of the top law firms in the United States by Martindale Hubble. Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager at Ben Lomond Market. This week we have some great buys from Mexico: large pineapples, two ninety-nine each; mini seedless watermelons, two ninety-nine each; and cluster tomatoes, a dollar forty-nine a pound. From California, we have one-pound clamshells, strawberries, two for four dollars; large Haas avocados, two for three dollars. And red leaf or green leaf lettuce, ninety-nine cents each. In organics, we are featuring one-pound clamshell strawberries, three ninety-nine each. Whole cantaloupes, two ninety-nine each. And organic mini seedless watermelons, three ninety-nine each. New items this week: red cherries, red velvet apricots, and white donut peaches. We have many other specials going on, so come check out our great selection of fresh produce at Ben Lomond Market. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. They have a wide array of products available, including brand-name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supply's friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz. Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4:30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. Tune in to the Sentinel Radio program Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on AM 1080 KSCO. Brought to you by First Church of Christ Scientist Monterey. Come into our Christian Science Community Reading Room and Bookstore and find comfort from the challenges you're facing. We have the resources that will connect you with your God-given substance. Find help now. Our address is 780 Abrego Street in Monterey. Reach out for this help today. Come in and visit or call 831-372-5076. 372-5076. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Senator and renewable energy expert, Mr. Byron Dorgan. And before the break, we were making the point that uh, that wind and solar energy is really the long-term solution, uh, and that uh, we have a tendency in this country to seize upon the failures rather than look at the statistical record of those investments and how they've really paid off. So let's move on to biofuels, something that you have championed in the past,、mm-hmm. and、uh, many countries in South America. Uh, you pull into a gas station and you have a choice of、uh, gasoline or biofuel, and you can look and see which is cheaper, and then choose what you want. But we seem to be a little behind the curve when it comes to biofuels. Why, why is that? Well,、uh, we haven't made that determination as a country that we want to do something very significant in this area. Let me just make a couple of points. Number one, ninety percent of the fuel used in in transportation in this country is oil-based fuel. So that's that's the most important piece here. Seventy percent of the oil in America is used in transportation, 
and transportation uses ninety uh, percent of its uh, fuel coming from oil. So, um, I, I think what we're going to see is uh, uh, more electric vehicles, more uh, uh, more different kinds of uh, propulsion for vehicles. But here's what we did with respect to biofuels, and, and our future should include robust biofuel production as well. In 2005, I was one of the authors of what is called the Renewable Fuel Standard, and we said we want to have uh, uh, 10% of our fuel in this country coming from uh, renewable sources, biofuels, ethanol, and guess what? In a very short period of time, we displaced 10% of gasoline uh, for our vehicles. We were using about 130, 140 billion gallons a year. And we're now producing about 14 billion gallons of ethanol. Well, that's a huge success. Good for us. But now, you know, we're on the next phase of what is called cellulosic ethanol. And that has been delayed some and had some difficulties. We'll get there, I think. But it's slowed it down because, um, you know, the current goal is to go to 36 billion gallons of uh, of uh, uh, ethanol and, and cellulosic uh, fuel. And that's called the second generation biofuels. Not long ago, uh, CIA Director uh, R. James Woolsey was kind enough to visit us on the program. And and he mentioned that all it would really take to enable cars to accept uh, gasoline or biofuels was to replace the material that we're currently using for gas lines. And I think he estimated that it would cost somewhere south of $100 per vehicle or something along the, mm-hmm. those lines. If that's true, why can't we just mandate that like we do seat belts? Well, we can and we should, in my judgment. But there are uh, people in Congress now who object to these things. They, they, they do not like any federal government mandates. Well, I mentioned that I was one of the authors of the renewable fuel standard that we created in 2005 and then again in 2007. It still exists. But you couldn't get that passed today, although it still exists in law. Some are trying to repeal it. Uh, but you know, they, they don't like mandates. Well, look, I, I think mandates are fine if we're mandating the right kind of behavior and mandating more energy security and more American security by saying, let's produce alternative fuels, biofuels. It just makes a lot of sense to me. I think we're confused about what's a mandate and what's leadership. I, I find this argument many times. I, people say, well, I don't want to be mandated. And I say, well, but do you want to be led? Yeah, yeah. well, that's a really excellent point. You know, then they always say, well, the minute you get involved, you're, you're picking winners and losers. And I always say, well, I'm not for picking winners and losers. I'm just for picking winners, but I'm for picking. That's true. And, and I think your approach, which is that if you have a diversity, just as we invest in the stock market, you know, no one puts all their money on one stock unless you're a fool. You, we understand diversification in our stock portfolios, but we don't seem to understand it when it comes to our energy policy. You have to be diversified because some uh, investments are going to succeed, some forms of energy are going to succeed, and some are not going to. And if you have an intolerance for failure, you can't move forward. Yeah, well said. And, you know, the fact is, there are some now in Congress who believe that we shouldn't have any policy. Let the market decide whatever the policy is. Well, if that's the case, the incumbents always win. By incumbents, I mean, you know, those that produce oil. Oil is going to be the winner. The Saudis, the cartels are going to be the winners. Do you have time for a quick story? Yes, absolutely. So one night I'm on what is the old Air Force One, the one before they got the 747. And about five of us are flying overseas across the Pacific one night. 
uh, to go to, to uh, Vietnam and China and Japan on behalf of President Clinton. There were five senators. And on the plane that night was John Glenn, former astronaut, right? And mm-hmm. he was the senator from Ohio. And I leaned across to John that night because I, I was going to pepper him with questions about his space flight, his first space flight. And I said, John, when you were going on the dark side of the Earth that, that evening on the first space flight, you know, the world was on edge just listening to the account of it. Um, I said, I read later that everybody in Perth, Australia, every citizen turned on every light bulb to signal the astronaut who was flying on the dark side of the planet. I said, did you look down and did you, did you know about this? Did you see the lights of Perth, Australia? And he said, I really did. And the dark side, I looked down because I, I knew they were going to do this. And I saw this bright light coming from the dark planet. And, he, and then he said, you know, the, the evidence, if you're flying above the dark side of planet Earth, the evidence that there's human life is the use of energy. And, you know, it, it, your life and my life starting this morning, and when we get up in the morning, we just use energy in so many different ways and never think of it. That's the only right. time we would think of it is if it weren't available. And that's why energy is so important to national security. I couldn't agree with you more. You did mention that 70% of the energy that we bring in, in in the form of oil is being used for transportation. When the government was bailing out the automobile industry, it may have squandered an opportunity to make significant changes like forcing the changing of fuel lines to accommodate biofuels. What do you say to those folks? Yeah, I think we missed some opportunities. I mean, you know, we passed uh, new cafe standards requiring more efficient automobiles. Bills, but it would be smart of us to develop mandates and say, here's where we're headed. We're headed in a way that is going to uh, produce more biofuels for our vehicles to displace imported oil, for example. We're headed towards more electric vehicles and more hybrid vehicles, perhaps more natural gas trucks. So, I mean, our country should have a plan, and we ought to be moving in the direction of creating winners through that plan. But on the other hand, there are a lot of folks that feel that we're not really going to get off the dime until gas is $25 a gallon. Uh, so we're going to be forced to keep raising the price to make people change their behavior. What do you think of that? No, I think that is the case. Uh, a crisis always provokes uh, and incentivizes different kinds of behaviors. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see us drive uh, lighter cars, obviously, more efficient vehicles. And uh, when the price of gas, if the price of gas were to be uh, 4 or 5 or $6 a gallon, you'd see different choices being made. But it's also the case that the choice of fuel is critical in this country. And, you know, you think of uh, the countries like China and India. It's pretty clear that the substantial numbers of additional people who are going to want to drive cars, three or four hundred million more cars on this planet uh, from those areas, uh, looking for a gas station once a week or once every two weeks, you know, that's going to have a substantial impact as well, which is why we need to take a look at how we use fuel and where that fuel comes from. There, By the way, there's about 200,000 new people, new human souls on this earth Every single day, net 200,000 addition. That means we add a Dallas, Texas to the planet every single week. And, you know, they're gonna, they, they want to have washing machines and air conditioners and refrigerators and also to drive cars. And so they're going to be consumers of energy. And our country needs to think through a longer-term strategy of how to, to develop diverse sources of energy, how to make more use of biofuels and wind and solar and all of those things, even as we have this good news story of additional oil and gas production at this point. Well, we're certainly going to have to find a way to accommodate all those new citizens. We have to take another break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. 
If you're anything like me, you're scratching your head and wondering what in the world is going on. We have plenty of technology and more resources and knowledge than at any other time in human history. But we just don't seem to be able to solve our problems anymore. They just get bigger and bigger. What's worse is we know what's going to happen if we continue down this path. And it isn't pretty. So that's why I'm asking you, nope. I'm pleading with you to take a moment to read the Watchman's Rattle, because when you do, you'll be able to spot the five impediments which stand in the way of solving our greatest threats. You'll also discover what you can do about them. Go to RebeccaCosta.com or your favorite bookstore and grab a copy of the Watchman's Rattle. Don't wait. If you care one iota about what's happening to the life you love, you owe it to yourself to read the Watchman's Rattle. It may have taken seven years to write, but you can order it in under a minute. Welcome to Automated Computer Services, America's most drawn-out tech support line. One moment, please. For our hours of op- Thank you for your application. Unfortunately, there are no openings at this time. Your username and password has been set up. Your payment of $23.69 has... Congratulations, your mother is now scheduled to be in attendance at our next set. Hi, welcome to Automated... Goodbye. Tired of unfriendly computer support? Slow computer? Viruses? Spyware? No problem. Call the friendly computer experts at User-Friendly Computing. We take care of all your PC, Macintosh, and laptop needs. Mention KSCO and get a free $50 diagnostic. Visit us today at 505 River Street on the way to downtown Santa Cruz, across from Gateway Plaza. We give you a choice. Drop your computer by the shop, or we'll come to you. Call us today at 423-9653. User-Friendly Computing. Women, know your risk. We now have more heart attacks than men do. Cardiovascular disease is our number one killer, taking more of us than cancer, Alzheimer's, and accidents combined. Women, you spend a lot of time taking care of others. Now it's time to take care of yourself. Hello, I'm Linda Krause of My Personal Best Health with good news. My Personal Best Health has a simple, affordable screening that can reveal your risk factor for heart attack or stroke, and we can help help you lessen that risk. I had done other conventional heart screenings, but this one saved my life. That's why I co-founded MyPersonalBestHealth.com. Our mission, our passion, is to help you with your heart wellness. So call today for the simple, low-cost, five-minute screening at 831-278-2825 or visit MyPersonalBestHealth.com. There you can also check out our next workshop on women's heart health. Don't delay as I did. Your heart is too important to put this off. Have a tea, we're gonna do 25 now, 50 now, 75, we're gonna Imagine finding an old painting, or chair, or fishing lure, while rummaging through the attic. Is it junk, or is it hidden treasure? Hello, I'm Rob Slowinski of Slowinski Auctions and Appraisers in Scotts Valley. Before you throw that item out, you better make certain it's not hidden treasure, and the way to do that is to join me at 2 p.m. Saturday afternoon here at KSEO for Hidden Treasures Radio Show. Put that item on the table in front of you and call the show. We'll figure out what that item is, where it came from, what it's worth, give or take. So don't throw that item out. Instead, join me, Rob Slowinski of Slowinski Auction Company, Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. for Hidden Treasures Radio Show. Is it junk? 
or is it hidden treasure? Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Senator Byron Dorgan. So let's talk a little bit about the recommendations the Bipartisan Policy Center just issued. Uh, For starters, can you tell us who's behind the Bipartisan Policy Center? Well, it's cool. It's bipartisan, and the reason I joined it as a senior fellow is the think tanks, so-called think tanks in Washington, D.C. and around the country, in most cases, you can tell based on the name of the think tank what they think. I mean, they're either conservative or they're liberal, and uh, that doesn't provide much benefit when they put out a report, and you know it comes from one side or the other. So the Bipartisan Policy Center was... Uh, founded by four former uh, majority leaders in the U.S. Senate, two Republicans and two Democrats. And um, it's it's grown rather rapidly and is seen as really an honest broker in trying to think through and develop new public policy choices that truly are bipartisan. And so um, the, we, we just completed... Uh, an energy project, uh, Senator, former Senator Trent Lott from Mississippi and I were the two co-chairs, along with uh, former National Security Advisor Jim Jones and former EPA head Bill Riley. And uh, we had an advisor group of 20 people, mostly CEOs from virtually every sector, including uh, the nonprofits, and the environmental sector, uh, from Exxon and you know, uh, we had um, uh, a lot of advice, and we put together after 18 months a a report that says, you know, to Congress, if you really wanted to do something in a bipartisan way to advance America's energy security, here's the menu uh, by which you could do it. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the recommendations was to open up drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, Florida, and the mid-Atlantic states. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there are 50 recommendations, and the recommendations are to produce more, uh, conserve more, more efficiency, more innovation. I mean, I could go through all of those things. But uh, in oil and gas, do we want to produce more? Yes, we do. We want to do it the right way with, with uh, proper safeguards and and the concern about uh, what we do to the environment and how we do it. But we also uh, want to produce more renewable energy, boost biofuels, the renewable fa- fuel standard, uh, also have a renewable electricity standard. You know, 30 states have uh, what are called electricity standards saying we want a certain percentage of our electricity to come from renewable sources. California leads the list with a 33% requirement. But uh, so our, our recommendations uh, can consider all of those areas and I think are, you know, substantially uh, the kind of recommendations you would have if you really want diverse sources of energy. One of the recommendations I found very curious, uh, it talked about uh, allowing companies to export gasoline and natural gas. And, and of course, like many listeners, I was, I was saying to myself, how can we even be thinking about exporting it if we're importing in order to make up for the deficit of what we use? Am I missing something here? Well, we're not importing natural gas. Uh, we're importing oil. Uh, we were importing about 60% of our oil. It's now down to about 45% and, and probably close to 40 by now. It's decreasing. So that recommendation is not about oil. In fact, there's a prohibition in federal law with respect to the export of oil. Uh, with respect to natural gas, uh, we are not importing any quantity of natural gas. In fact, we've been exporting. We've doubled our exports to both Mexico and Canada. But they say we have uh, up to 100 years of natural gas at this point. And uh, what we didn't, we didn't suggest it either be exported or not exported. We said let's let the market make that judgment. 
So what do you say to folks that say if we export natural gas or any other form of energy, uh, that keeps prices elevated for the American citizen? Well, uh, first of all, there are several studies with respect to what might or might not happen if there were some natural gas exports to in any significant way. As I said, we've, we're now exporting to Mexico and Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, in order to export natural gas, for example, to Asia, you'd have to, you have to liquefy it, you have to build plants that cost billions of dollars, put it on a ship and move it. I think the economics are not going to be very substantial to move much natural gas outside of this country. Perhaps some, but not very much in my judgment. And the three studies that have been done that I have seen that have credibility uh, indicate that there will be a very insignificant effect on the price of natural gas here in this country. Now, uh, the the policy center was also in favor, and this is, again, I want to point out as a bipartisan committee of experts, mm-hmm. which includes CEOs, heads of nonprofits, and so on and so forth. Um, they were also in favor of hydraulic fa- fracturing called fracking. Um, mm-hmm. But you are careful to say that you recommend that only if there's increased federal oversight. Is that right? Well, with hydraulic fracturing, and by the way, we've been doing that for about 50 years in this country. It's not new. Mm-hmm. It is new to do hydraulic fracturing uh, combined uh, uh, with uh, the, some of the deep well drilling that that has been going on. The, but uh, hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling that uh, represents sort of the new approach to get oil and gas um, if if best practices are used and effective regulations are employed, uh, the evidence over 50 years for hydraulic fracturing is that they, there are not substantial environmental problems with it. Some of the new techniques that are more efficient, however, have created some problems with uh, groundwater. Is that right? Well, you know, for example, North Dakota, there's probably more hydraulic fracturing going on in my home state than anywhere at the moment. Mm-hmm. They're drilling... 2,500 oil wells a year there, and we'll continue that for many years. Um, they're, they're down at 10,000 feet, far, far below any water table, and there's no evidence, the State Health Department and others have done a lot of studies, there's no evidence of any difficulty with, uh, with water issues in North Dakota. That is water contamination, and there's no evidence at all. Mm-hmm. So uh, pretty much this is a case where there's uh, empirical evidence that some of our fears are not really backed up by <laughs> by anything tangible. Um, uh, so, so moving on, uh, the Bipartisan Policy Center also recommended government-funded research and development investments for small nuclear reactors, uh, capturing the carbon dioxide emitted by burning coal, and uh, and then also uh, a bit of a surprising recommendation that it was incredibly brave was the recommendation to open up uh, loan guarantees to companies in renewable energy. Uh, and we talked just a while ago about Solyndra. Uh, maybe you could take a moment to explain why these loan guarantees are, are so important. Sure. But let me go back first quickly to say that those who are concerned about hydraulic fracturing, mm-hmm. you know, they, they play a valuable role here in the sense to keep everybody's feet to the fire to make sure the regulations are in place, number one. Number two, there's enforcement of those regulations, and there's enforcement of best practices. So, that, that you know, 
I'm not discounting uh, people being interested and concerned about hydraulic fracturing. I personally think it's been used safely for a long while and, and will continue to be, but you must enforce best practices and effective regulatory oversight. And uh, so, I mean, th- those are the the things that I think are important in, in uh, hydraulic fracturing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think best practices, everyone is always striving for the best practices, mm-hmm. but we seem to find that when there are situations such as the Gulf oil spill, it's always a uh, problem with oversight, where right. the regulations were in fact in place, but there was just not appropriate oversight. And exactly. a- as we reach out to take on more and more diverse forms of uh, energy production, oversight becomes a bit of an issue, doesn't it? It does. It sure does. And, and so that's why I think, you know, those who are concerned and raise their voices uh, do a, a real service. And now with respect to loan guarantees, you know, those uh, technologies that are less mature, not quite uh, ready to compete fully in the marketplace, those are the things that w- we want to help build and create and uh, providing some loan guarantees in those circumstances makes a lot of sense because how do you get to the next generation of technology uh, you know except by helping grow it and nurture it and again going back to the people who say that's picking winners and losers i i say no it's picking winners in the most most cases that's absolutely right and our uh, government's record has been uh, outstanding in terms of these investments despite the bad publicity uh, a few failures have uh, recently received uh, we have to take our last break stay tuned we'll be right back you're listening to the costa report I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars. Now, there's a number of ways you can taste wines at the tasting room. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we currently have nine different wines on our tasting menu, and we really want it to be an experience where you get to taste the wine that you want to taste. So if you want to taste Pinot, you can really focus your flight around that. If you wanted to focus on the bubbles, we have three different sparklings that will allow you to build your flight that way. Or if you came in and you just wanted to taste one wine, we would uh, have it set up for you to be able to do that as well. Now, what's a flight? A flight is basically a combination of small tastes of different wines. If you wanted to taste all of our different Chardonnays, you could taste the 2007 Chardonnay, the 2008, and the 2009, and we would line you up with an individual taste of each of them. Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Just about everyone knows that fruits and vegetables are good for our health. But not everyone knows how to build a healthier plate. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. For each meal, nutrition experts recommend filling half of your plate with fruits and veggies. Whether it's fresh berries with your breakfast cereal, a wrap filled with your favorite roasted vegetables for lunch, or a medley of crunchy veggies for a pre-dinner nibble, Dole provides the freshest and highest quality produce available. When you load up on all the nutritional good stuff, You give your meal an instant boost of color, flavor, and texture, plus vitamins and minerals and fiber. Everything your body needs to succeed. 
For nutritional inspiration and to learn more about Dole's fresh, whole, and cut vegetables and a full line of berries, visit Dole.com. With Dole as your partner in health, the possibilities are endless. Visit Dole.com. Given what's going on in the world, it's more important than ever to save money. Hello, I'm Scott Bedell from Bedell Nelson Harbor Insurance, your allied agent in Santa Cruz. Bedell Nelson can save you money by packaging your home and auto coverage with Allied. We can even help you save on your vacation rental with Foremost Insurance Group. Give us a call at 426-3700 and ask for a free, no-obligation quote. We are Bedell Nelson Harbor Insurance, and we can save you money because Allied and Nationwide are on your side. 426-3700. Hi, it's MZ. We at KSCO KOMY believe that prescription drugs cause much more harm than good and should be used as a last resort rather than a first resort to treat health conditions. We are strong supporters of the 90 for Life program from Longevity. The belief that if you give your body all the 90 essential nutrients that it needs, you will live a much longer and healthier life and not need toxic prescription drugs that lead to side effects that require more toxic prescription drugs and on and on. Promoting 90 for Life has enabled us to not only survive but thrive in the cutthroat media industry controlled by mega corporations, big government, and big pharma. We believe 90 for Life is the key to health care in the USA. Obamacare is a more expensive continuation of a failed system. With your help, we can save America by getting it healthy again. Please go online to kseoteam.com, get on the 90 for Life program, order a healthy start pack, and get and stay healthy. kseoteam.com. When it comes to your business, we are all business. Hi, I'm Michelle Bassey with Wells Fargo Bank. Wells Fargo has teamed up with the Santa Cruz chapter of SCORE to bring you small business counseling sessions on KSCO Tuesday mornings at 745 and evenings at 515. Tune in and learn how successful business people walk their talk. When it comes to your business, our Wells Fargo-powered SCORE counseling sessions on KSCO really are all business. Tune in and learn. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Senator from North Dakota, Mr. Byron Dorgan. So continuing with the uh, bipartisan recommendations, it was noticeable that there weren't any specific recommendations regarding global warming or even protecting Mm -hmm. clean water. Uh, So I have to ask you, was that because both parties could not agree on what the recommendations should be? Yeah, well, actually, the people that were involved in this, we weren't there so much as members of political parties. So, But uh, having said that, we would not have been able to reach consensus on a architecture of, of policy to address climate change. The, you know, the, the development of policy of how you would address climate change is very controversial, and we would never have received arrived at consensus. But we did, at the front end of this report, say that uh, you know every intersection where you talk about energy, you have to talk about the environment because of uh, climate change issues. We just didn't prescribe the remedy for it because we didn't feel that we could reach a consensus, and that's not what this report is. So will the group come back together again, or will there be another group that will be looking at the impact that the recommendations for expanding energy might have on the environment? I think so, and I don't know that this group will come back together. We hope that there will be hearings in both the House and the Senate on the report and that we will testify at those hearings. 
But there will be other venues in which people talk about the specific architecture of a set of policies and how to address climate change. Personally, I would support a uh, what is called a carbon fee. I think there should be a price on carbon. And, uh, you know, the sooner the better, because I, I believe in a, what is called a carbon fee and dividend approach. But, um, you know, that we would not have reached consensus. I do think this country needs to lead in these important areas and lead in the area of energy innovation. But also, we should provide more leadership than we are in making sure that we are safeguarding the economy. And, the, and climate change is a very serious issue. Those I know there are some doubters, but the fact is it's very hard to look at all of the evidence by the best scientists in the world and have any significant doubts. Something is happening. And at the very least, we ought to take a series of no-regret steps to address it so that if 50 years from now we discover that, no, it really wasn't happening, we still would have done things that advantaged our country and advantaged the environment. There are many people that think having any domestic policy regarding climate change is kind of insane because you can do everything right as a nation, but if you have other nations such as China uh, neutralizing any gains that you have in terms of uh, cleaning up the air or cleaning up the water or cleaning up the oceans, um, uh, it doesn't work. And so can there really be such a thing as a domestic policy regarding something as large as climate change? I think so. I mean, clearly the policy has to be international and you have to have all countries involved. But it begins with at least a first step of providing some leadership. And I would hope our country would show that leadership. It would be wonderful if the air that we used just only hovered over the United States. That's true. In the in the first book, you know, I've written several books. My fourth book is coming out in July, by the way. But my first book, I talked about uh, China haze. I mean, we breathe China haze, you yes. know, and and everybody understands it. So what they do in China has a, an impact on the air we breathe here in the United States. So yeah, we need this needs to be international, and uh, and we need to provide leadership to get there. I, I sometimes become concerned and also confused about domestic and international policy. I'm not so sure there's such a separation as there used to be, uh, whether it's financial policies, uh, trading, um, mm-hmm. uh, pandemic viruses, immigration. They all seem to reach beyond our border. And, and yet we have this clear division mentally between what is a domestic policy and what's an international policy, even though anything we decide domestically is impacted so greatly by our relationship with other countries. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, I, you, you state it very well, and uh, yet I would say that the very things that we would do to combat climate change and the effects of climate change are things that will promote greater energy security for our country, and you need energy security. Uh, you know, pursuing more uh, clean energy strategies, wind and solar and geothermal, those things are exactly the menu of things you would do to, to try to have a an approach to uh, address climate change. Plus, they would provide greater energy security for the country. Absolutely. Um, Now, you mentioned your fourth book. Can you give us a little preview of what that book might be about? Actually, this is the second of uh, the two novels. I signed a contract to write two novels. 
and uh, this is an interesting book. It's uh, it's about it's a, it's a novel. A lot of a lot of uh, a lot of bad things happening, but uh, it has a good ending. It's uh, a a virus that was created by an, a country that's an adversary, stolen by the Iranians. A, a virus that is put into the American electric grid system. And it's uh, you know a, a foreign country and, and foreign hackers trying to hold America hostage by shutting down its electric grid system. And it talks about it's, well, it's, it's a novel, so it's I think it's interesting. It's, it's uh, I, I think we need to for people just joining us, we need to remind them this is nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just put your you did an Orson Welles and War of the World. I think a lot of people are running for their basements right now. Yeah, right, right. Well, don't do that. But I did. <laughs> I, this is the second novel that uh, I've been involved in. And the first two books were one was about trade, and the other was about the financial near financial meltdown. But uh, this one uh, is a second book of a two book series that I've done on, on energy, both on energy, but. Uh, both uh, are called thrillers, and uh, it's uh, this one is titled will be titled uh, Gridlock, and it comes out July ninth. How are you enjoying writing fiction? You know, it's really interesting. Some people will say, "Well, I lived in fiction in thirty years in the Congress," <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, having written two books about economic issues and then uh, turning to fiction, you know, it's it's fascinating to develop the architecture of a plot. And then develop characters, and the characters become putty in your hands. There's no character named Rebecca, by the way, in my books. <laughs> and let's but, keep it uh, that way. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but it, I, I've really enjoyed writing fiction. It's very interesting. I, I would imagine, and uh, and I would imagine that you draw from a lot of scenarios that you probably ran through your head uh, as possibilities when you were in mm-hmm. government. Well, it's true. In fact, uh, the, the the premise of this book comes from something I read in the Wall Street Journal about six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they talked about the the chronic reports that exist that either the Chinese or the Russians have implanted a virus in the American electric grid system. And I thought, well, that's that's interesting. What if someone were to put a virus in our grid system? Which you know that comes to the cyber terror issue. And so then I wrote a novel based on that. Well, we do know now that the Chinese military had uh, hired hackers and were uh, creating quite a, a disturbance on the Internet for a period of time. So I think that uh, this novel will certainly take off. Uh, and But I do think you have to put a large warning in the front of it, uh, particularly with your name on it, that says, this is nonfiction, folks. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Rebecca, I'll do that. <laughs> now, we're almost out of time. Before we let you go, how can listeners stay in touch with you and learn more about the work of the Bipartisan Policy Center? Well, the Bipartisan Policy Center is in Washington, D.C. I'm a senior fellow there, and uh, they have a website. I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, if they look, if they just Google uh, Bipartisan Policy Center, they'll be able to uh, get that website and... Uh, um, and how can they find you? Well, I'm I'm uh, in Washington D.C. and uh, also I'm traveling a lot in the West Coast. I'll be in North Dakota this weekend. I've, you know, I'm I'm traveling a lot, and uh, but they can they can email me at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and I'll receive uh, emails or messages if they wish to track me down. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Well, that is our program for today. But before we say goodbye, I would like to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Dorgan. 
Thank you very much, Rebecca. If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you'd like to comment on today's program, you can send your emails to RebeccaCosta.com and also join us on Facebook and Twitter. We love to hear from you, so I hope you will take a moment to share your thoughts with us. And while you're at the website, also take a moment to uh, link today's interview to your friends, because when you do, you are helping change the face of radio. My guest next week is author and expert on how the workplace is changing, Daniel Pink. Today, one out of nine American workers are responsible for sales. And according to Pink, the other eight are also in the business of selling. Pink will explain why the art of persuading others is a natural human drive and how this drive shapes the success of organizations and also nations. So don't miss the one and only Daniel Pink next week, right here on your favorite weekly news magazine, the only program that puts principles ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report when we take your calls. If you listen to talk shows in the news today, you might come away with the impression that the root of all our problems are politics or economics. The right blames the left, the left blames the right, and everyone blames the Chinese. But take a hard look at where the blame game has gotten us. That's why I'm asking you to pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It's available in paperback and as an ebook too. And if you don't have time to read, there's an audio version so you can listen in your car or even on the beach. The book explains why complexity produces gridlock and what we have to do to start moving forward again. So pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle at a bookstore near you or online retailer. Do it today. You, there's only one, and we exist because of you. To provide the care you need when you need it, Physicians Medical Group has over 300 providers just in Santa Cruz County. That's over 300 teammates focused on the one, the only, you. With over 42 specialties and 100 locations, you'll find the right provider for you. Find your teammate, your Physicians Medical Group care provider, by visiting our website, pmgscc.com. Michael Olson's third law of the food chain, cheap food isn't. They make food cheap by taking the food out of it and by making taxpayers subsidize its costs. Thus, the cheap food they promise is really the expensive food they deliver. To find true value, tune in KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show tracks down the real deal of food. If you have a comment about the third law of the food chain, tell me, Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating What Radio on the food chain. What day was that? From San Jose to Salinas, Red Hot News Talk, AM 1080, KSCO Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 